Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. to a Tuesday afternoon edition of Nightlight. Oh, so hot, no time to take a rest. Yeah, ain't room for second best. So that is why we have the best megalithic researcher as our guest today. Maria Wheatley is here, and we're hoping our friend, super special friend, Rob, calls in to discuss the perils of the electric eye or the accuracy of Nostradamus. Anyhow, Maria has been a regular discussing Stonehenge, Avebury, trips to Egypt and Malta, and her books like The Elongated Skulls of Stonehenge. You can learn more about her by going to her website, the Avebury Experience.co.uk. Hi, Maria. Hi, Mark. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Very well, thanks. How's the winter in England? Well, we've had a peppering of snow and it's quite cold, but I'm sure it's worse where you are. Uh, yeah, it it is. Got another one that is uh, kind of like nor'easters but spring's not too far off oh what's your fellow subjects uh line uh if winter comes can spring be far behind uh who's that tennyson yeah yeah anyhow um you know, during the many times I've had you as a guest, um, I want to get into the white horses of southern England, and we always run out of time, so maybe we'll start <laughs> start with them this this time. And you know, I um, saw one of them from a train window, but it, it wasn't 
the Uffington White Horse. Uh, I don't know which one I saw. Um, I think what's it? it was like the left-hand side of the train <clears throat> as I was going towards Swindon. I think what you saw, Mark, was the Bratton or what's known as the Westbury White Horse because that's near a train station and the other okay. white horses are not. And I, I was there at the weekend, actually, at the Westbury White oh. Horse. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, so I I knew what the Uffington one looked like um, you know, bef- before the trip and I, I I know I didn't see that one so okay uh, you're helping to identify which one I saw but yeah you know, it's like the you know I got um settled into the B and B later in the afternoon and you know like the next day was when I uh, walked around Avebury and uh saw the West Kent at Longborough and the museum and they had that uh, d- display of uh, deer antlers that were used to loosen the soil and it was, it was basically like uh, the garden weasel uh, that uh, Billy Mays advertises but wait, there's more. Um, but you know that was, uh, that was like 30 years ago, and uh, when I was there. But it was really interesting that you know the ne- Neolithic people uh, created an invention that is really hasn't changed too much in this design in 5,000 years, but, uh, you know, I really got a lot out of you know, my day trip there. I still still wonder how, how many, like, may have passed you in the, you know, being in the museum or walking inside the circle. Well, what a lovely thought, Mark. I would really like to think that I saw Mark listening to Judas Priest and his best yes. friend <laughs> <laughs> uh, walking around Avery Stones. Yeah, Thir- 30 years later were uh, colleagues. But anyhow, let, you know, before we get sidetracked with uh, discussing Rob <laughs> And Jesus Priest, um, I might as well get to the uh, white horses. So um, you, you, you do have an interesting uh, pamphlet on white horses. It, you know, what uh, some of these white horses are. You know, Carved within the last 150 years or so, you know, so some of them aren't that yeah. old. But Uffington actually is a much older uh, uh, carving into the chalk. What what cultural significance did 
these uh, white horses play for or have for the uh, uh, people who design them? Well, first of all, we need to think of the Uffington White Horse as being a chalk hill figure. It's a, a 300 and uh, or so feet long, 365 feet long, actually. And it really covers quite a hillside, but you can't see it from the ground. The only place that you can see it from is from the air. And it's chalk white. And it's rescored. That means packed with cleaner chalk every seven years and it's part of a ceremonial landscape so you have the the white horse dated to the late bronze age or the early iron age and you have above it uffington castle which is a, a druid ceremonial center on top of the hill which has been dated to about 800 bc that's the transitional phase from the bronze age into the iron age and then further afield by about a mile or so you have the wayland smithy Long Barrow. So it's a huge ceremonial center. And just in front of the White Horse, you have Dragon Hill. And it's associated, as we're going to in a moment, with very, very powerful and unusual and rare types of earth energy. But the significance of the horse. The significance of, uh, of the horse is when you start to look at the artifacts of the early Iron Age, the horse features quite strongly, but not as a horse that we think of it. They tend to be stylized and quite unusual in their drawing, like the Uffington White Horse. Its face doesn't look like a horse. It's called stylized. And it represents, to, to some regard, uh, the goddess, because you have Rhiannon in Celtic mythology that's associated to the White Horse, and you have the Roman Epona from where the word pony comes from. And it's associated with the moon, the horse with its horseshoe shape. But there is a quite stunning astronomical alignment associated with the, the white horse, which is absolutely beautiful to witness today. And that's at the midsummer sunset, the sun kind of shines its red and golden light onto the white horse, making it a quite myriad of colors. So when we go back to its history, it didn't necessarily look like that, according to antiquarian reports. It looked quite feline, quite cat-like. And a lot of people think that today's uh, version of it looks like a dragon and is associated to Dragon Hill. Yeah. Okay, so... With Dragon Hill... Uh, you, know, you have druid engineering going on and the later Arthurian legends are mixed into you know with Dragon Hill and the nearby Dragon Hill so you act it seems like this area is just has a concentration of all kinds of overlapping uh, like ceremonial sites uh, just compacted into a a uh, small what uh area like a couple miles or so, just they don't seem to be very far from each other Right? No, it, it, that's right. It's, it's a legendary landscape that starts in the mm -hmm. Neolithic and continues to the Dark Ages, which is the 4th century AD, which is around the time of King Arthur and King mm -hmm. Arthur's 
father, Uther Pendragon, is associated with Dragon Hill, for example, because he's said to be buried there. And Uffington Castle was one of Uther's favourite places to visit. But you're, you're looking at the Dark Age projecting onto the Iron Age. Those two cultures probably had completely different lifestyles. And when we look at a legendary landscape, you have to think, why are these wonderful monuments there? Why did the ancients be attracted to that landscape in the first place? And when we look through the eyes of master dancers and we look through the eyes of earth energies, another story of what you can't see begins to unfold. For, for example, on Dragon Hill, you have a multitude of different energies. You have male and female earth currents that were discovered by uh, an author called Gary Bilcliffe. But you also have two very powerful, not like Sedona, but you still have two very powerful vortex points. One is male and one is female. And retired engineer David Webb came to this wonderful landscape with me and he tested these areas by putting copper probes down to get either a DC or an AC current coming out of the ground. He focused on the DC current and it was coming out in a cycle at these vortex points. So if you imagine you've got two vortex, one is male and one is female, and they're kind of going clockwise and one's going counterclockwise and they form a kind of energy current that flows through the landscape which was being first discovered back in the 1980s when a local dancer called Brian showed a chap called Hamish Miller the Beckhampton serpent at Avebury which is very similar it's born of two vortexes and then flows towards Avebury and I've done the research in Uffington and elsewhere to do with these energy types because Hamish and Brian didn't really look into it it was just a little brief chapter in a book called uh, The Sun and the Serpent so I think it was down to the earth energies why these places were being used and it allows us to kind of look into why they were used in these places and how so when we come to Wayland Smithy we can see that this energy line this energy current that goes through the land behaves in a particular manner at Wayland Smithy so for me as a, as a dancer it's down to these very powerful earth energies born of the vortexes on Dragon Hill but when we look to how other master dancers have viewed the ancient landscape like Guy Underwood he was a pioneer of the geodetic system of Earth energy. And I've inherited all of his papers and spent the last 25 years of my life, not just listening to Judas Priest, uh, Mark, but looking into Guy Underwood's work as well. And what Guy didn't know at the time that he was dousing, unfortunately, is what's called remnants lines. And this was picked up by people like Tom Graves and my late father and myself many years later. So we started to look at the Underwood surveys and take out the remnants lines. And remnants lines are simply where people have walked, where pathways have been made. Because when it was looked at very carefully, his Stonehenge survey, it clearly showed that he was following pathways where people had walked. So his survey of the, the white horse isn't necessarily the best because what he was picking up on, there's an old folktale to do with a white horse. It rides up the hill. Oh, it's a big folktale. And what they mean is it's being constantly scored, recut, going up the hillside rather than down the hillside. And what Underwood was doing, he was getting the remnants trail of the last belly of the horse and drawing it into a survey. 
And the, the other master dancer that we'll look at in the Westby White Horse that you probably saw from your yeah. train window go into Swindon. You should have called in Marlborough and had uh, had a cup of tea with me, Mark. I'm kind of not that far from from Swindon. When we when we look to Lethbridge work, his is far, far more accurate than, than Underwood. But Underwood was a pioneer. He didn't know about remnants dancing at that time. Okay. Yeah, and you note on your secrets of the white horses that there was like this Neolithic road connecting uh, the white horse to Wayland Smithy and uh, uh, just, you know, that's right. And I did, didn't want to you know, get too sidetracked with, uh, the sweet tracks, uh, which could could be somewhat contemporary, but uh, yeah, there was some kind of uh, highway engineering system going on during the Neolithic times. I, 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 yeah. One of the nice things. But having you on is you know, the way you uh, recreate the prehistoric achievements found in southern England. Well, this is correct. I mean, the achievements of our ancestors is incredible. What they've left behind are monumental in form and in energy and just visually they are absolutely stunning not just uh, the white horses but standing stones and the, the whole layout of their ceremonial centers guides us from one reality to another reality it takes us from the ordinary to the extraordinary and we can thank our ancestors for that but you're right in what you say mark you're saying that the landscape of uffington containing the white horse and dragon hill you can walk right across what's called the Great Ridgeway to Wayland Smithy. And then you could walk to Avebury because it's on elevated ground. The climate was slightly different in the Neolithic. And it was different again in the Bronze Age. And by, by the time of the Iron Age, it drops a degree and the, the environment changes yet again. So some parts of England that we see now as being very fertile uh, were swamplands. So you had to walk quite on high ground to avoid the lower ground, which was far, far more soggy. And that's, that can date back as far as the Mesolithic period. It could be even as old as 10,000 years old. So when we walk to these ancient sites, we're walking in the footsteps of our ancestors that have been walking along there millennia ago. That's what I love. It's reconnecting to the ancestors in their footsteps. And when you touch one of those standing stones, that's what they put up. That was their their their, their beauty in the landscape. Amazing. Yeah. 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 What do you call it? Um, if you look at like the Arthurian folklore, mm. you, you get uh, Arthur, you know, 
mortally wounded and um, it may have been taken from Camelot and buried at Glastonbury and you know he's you have those uh, Victorian paintings of uh, him being uh, put on a ship and sent to uh, be buried on this island. Well, you know, what you're talking about with the uh, marshes and like inland seas, uh, that was actually uh, possible at at that time, and that's you know where you have some of the evidence of the elevated you know uh, what do you call it the carriageways uh between some of these uh hills like hill forts or whatever like they uh, you know these people were uh building elevated highways over the marshes but when the temperature dropped by a degree uh, uh-huh. in the Iron Age, then then yes, because they could no longer farm what's called the Celtic field systems of uh-huh. the Mid and Late Bronze Age. So they had to change, they had to adapt, and they left the monuments behind at that time, uh, around 1500 BC. There was a different emphasis, so they no longer maintained the, the monumental uh, landscapes. And, and, and the hill figures come in that time, they come in a kind of transitional uh, phase of the uh, Late Bronze Age and the the early Iron Age. And, and there were other uh, master dowsers that looked into other hill figures in southern England. And one of the most fascinating accounts has to come by uh, Tom Lethbridge, who looked at to Wendelbury Hill Fort, we're talking about the Iron Age, around 800 BC, who built the Wendelbury uh, Hill Fort. And Lethbridge claimed that they, these people, this culture, built some amazing hill figures that he found through an old-fashioned sounding method where you get a, a metal bar and bang it on the ground to try and hear the difference between sound, a bit like finding a, a wooden baton in your plaster wall to hang a picture on, for example. It sounds a little bit different. And that's what he was looking for. And he was, at the time, an archaeologist of Cambridge because uh, Wendelbury's not that far from Cambridge, um, actually, in, in southern England. And he uncovered and un earth all of these hill figures but the establishment the the, the kind of straight archaeologists uh, if you will made a mockery of his work although he did write a book on it called uh, uh, Og The Buried Gods where he uh, describes what he found and he also went to Westbury area which is the white horse I mentioned I think mm-hmm. that you probably saw because there was a very old horse there originally not the one that you saw there was one that's long gone it was around 1772 a very unusual looking horse that was replaced uh, later with uh, a more normal looking horse but what Lethbridge says is preceding all of that in the early Iron Age there was a very stylized 
in a similar manner to Uffington, but with a horse, like with a trunk, they often used to kind of put like elephant trunks onto the horses on their coinage system, onto their bucket and things like that. And he claims he found that white horse there through that sounding method. And later he went on to do a particular form of dowsing that is still very accurate when it comes to water divining and looking for minerals by using the long cord pendulum. So Lethbridge uh, left his legacy of finding numerous hill figures in the landscape. Yeah, well, yeah this is just really interesting that uh, the modern researchers are proving that folklore is based on a real event or something that was really there. It's just yeah. uh, uh, very interesting. That's right. It's like a holy history that continues, you know, orally mm -hmm. down through the uh, generations. And then it, it reaches a, a status, sometimes a mythical status and sometimes uh, a true holy history status. I mean, Dolores Cannon used to talk about that a lot of time, which she claimed you would reclaim through, uh, through an art such as past life regression. You can reclaim the past like that. Wow. I'm very intrigued. Well, when, when we come to Wayland Smithy, I'll describe a past life regression yeah. that I had about it that may be its holy history. Okay. But, uh, uh, we could do that because I, I had dug up some more information from, from several books on Wayland Smithy as uh you're really intrigued by Andrew Collins's um, assertion that there is a celestial alignment with Wayland Smithy. So, and you know, the this Longborough was you know what kind of like a contemporary site to the West Kennet Longborough over by you so um we can get into you know this past life uh, uh regression that you had at wayland smithy and you know let's spend some time discussing the, okay. the importance of uh th this archaeological site near the uffington whitehorse well first of all wayland smithy is in two phases what we see today, and it's a spectacular megalithic site, it has huge frontage stones, and it was edged by sarsens, and it's your typical Cotswold 7 type of long barrow, which is trapezoid shape. But preceding that, you had another type of barrow, much smaller, that was called Wayland Smithy 1. When it was being, when Wayland Smithy II, that's the megalithic structure that is visited today by numerous tourists and beloved by numerous tourists uh, as well, that uh, is much later. When they went to excavate that, like Cyril Fox, he was part of the excavation team there, they didn't really unearth that much because it had been ransacked over the years. But when they dug down towards the center of the barrow, they found up to 13 intact people. 
And that's a real bingo if you're an archaeologist. And as I've always explained before with the Neolithic people, they had longer skulls than what we have today. So right in the middle of what Wayland Smithy 2, you had Wayland Smithy 1, which is much, much older than West Kennet Longbarrow that you're referring to in the Avebury environs. And Wayland Smithy 2 is later than West Kennet Longbarrow. It's one of the kind of youngest Longbarrows, if you will, with very small inner, inner chambers, but very, very beautiful. And today it's surrounded by beech trees. And when you have a slight breeze in the beech trees, you can almost hear the whole area ringing with the, the song of the leaves. And if you go right to the far end, you will notice a tree is twisted just like in Sedona, because you have a mild vortex effect there that is coming in from that energy line I was talking about from uh, Dragon Hill. So that energy current goes from Dragon Hill, it flows uh, beneath uh, the White Horse, and then it flows all the way up to the Uffington Castle, and then courses towards Wayland Smithy, where it does something very unusual, because... Certain energy currents, not necessarily the energy lines that people like Hamish Miller have uh, discovered over the past 30 years, but if you have different, well, kind of wider currents, they can pulse and they can pulsate. But, uh, but one of Hamish's currents does pulsate in Glastonbury. And if it pulsates like seven or eight times, what a lot of people have likened that to is a place where you can activate your chakra system or cleanse your chakra system or balance yourself because you can easily find that with a dowsing rod put into search position that's pointing straight ahead and parallel to the ground. And then you walk from the far end of Wayland Smithy to the front and you will find that it starts to move around seven or eight times and the, the crown chakra is represented by the, in, the internal chamber beneath. So I think that we can, you know, interact with these energies and it maybe allow us to get better health, get better balance, for example, because the amazing thing about the energy line that links a Funtan landscape is it's not male and it's not female separate like other energy currents and energy lines are. This is where the two, it's believed, the male and the female combined as one, like a hermaphrodite line, and they flow throughout the landscape. So it's about balance. It's about uh, energy. And the really sensitive types of people that I've taken all over the world, from authors to, to people just interested in ancient sites, they feel that at Wayland Smithy, something quite magical happens. And it puts them in touch after they've gone through their chakra activation or rebalancing, if you will. It puts them in touch with their soul. It puts them in touch with something very deep inside of them that they find a purpose for and feel that they've been given something by that landscape. So these pulsating lines, I think, are very important because they put us in touch with literally our soul's divine purpose uh, in some regard. So there's that side of it too. And I've, I've taken, you know, past life aggression experts there like Dolores Cannon. I was her guide for Stonehenge and numerous places in South England, actually. So I saw the sites like Glastonbury Abbey through her eyes, through her regression. And I've been doing past life regression now since 1996. Where does time go, Mark? <laughs> 
<laughs> and Waylon Smithy uh, was one of the. Well, I know Waylon Smithy, obviously, but th- this woman was describing what she, uh, a site in southern England that I linked to Waylon Smithy. That's where my mind was going in, in the regression. Although she was from Australia, actually. And she was describing that there was uh, a sword forged there. And it's associated with uh, with a, a blacksmith who forged horses. And if you if you leave a coin on your horse, it will get shooed the next day. It's, it's a mythology associated with Wayland Smithy, for, for example. But in, in the past life regression, she said that there were swords forged there, three swords, one of steel, like Excalibur, for the, the king of England, like an Arthur okay. figure, and there was one of silver forged, and there was one of gold. She didn't know where the silver sword was placed, but she said the golden sword was taken to uh, to London, uh, and it was placed in the ground on May Day, uh, which is Beltane. It's a very uh, famous Celtic festival of uh, fertility. It's one of my favourite festivals, uh, definitely. And that was placed at Mayfair in London, is where she got that in the past life regression, which represents the wealth of England with that with that golden sword. So that's kind of how stories build up in the landscape through people with regression uh, and with holy history, folklore. It all adds a layer of meaning to these to these ancient sites and these ancient places and with the earth energies there they can trigger that kind of soul memory that soul purpose within us as well it, it Maria, what you were saying earlier about the uh twisted tree at uh, uh one end of wayland smithy uh and that just kind of reminded me of you know, about a year or so ago when we had Lucy Pringle as a guest talking about uh, some of the crop circles and uh, maybe the earth energies were coming up through the ground instead of, you know, so, some people might say, you know, UFOs or something were hovering hmm. over the field, but you know, she she's since we aren't uh, you know talking like huge distances, this twisted tree sounds uh, remotely familiar with uh, you know the formation of crop circles. Well, I, I just thought that was. Uh, yeah, I, I know. Yeah, just Lucy, make a little side uh, note there. Yeah, I know Lucy uh, quite, quite well. Uh, she's a she's a very dear friend of mine. Uh, actually, I I focus just on uh, stone circles myself, but the there are earth energies that interlace the planets. That's the one thing that we do know, and we do know that they come from uh, from the ground because if you put a copper probe in, in the ground, you can get its frequency and you get its signal. And ever since the 1930s, where probably the best research in Dowsing went, because there's not that much 
research, serious research done uh, these days on Earth energies, as it were. Then they looked into weather patterns, how dowsing affected weather, how your dowsing was affected by weather patterns, rather. What, how far does the energy field from geopathic stress, water lines uh, come up, how are plants affected by earth energy? And you'll find that the tests that were done, for example, by an agricultural scientist in the 70s on lays and foodstuffs grown on lays, they become quite twisted and, and, and quite wilted. So they're not necessarily, for some living organisms, the best place uh, to be above. And it was really, really thoroughly investigated, and all of the time it was coming from, from the ground. Although there is a debate with uh, grid systems, like the Hartman grid system, could that be coming down from the ionosphere? But most things are coming up from, from the Earth, because a lot of the time they are associated with geological conditions, such as aquifer water, groundwater, very, very deep yin water that's very, very deep uh, within the ground, fault lines, for example. If you just look to the St. Michael Lay that courses through Glastonbury Tor, churches toppled in 1275 because that's along a fault line after an earthquake in, in 1275. So we know that there's geological conditions that influence earth energies and emit Earth, earth energies. And in Alfred Watkins' book, The Old Straight Track, which is a classic about lays, the only lay, to my, the best of my knowledge, that has ever been excavated was by Watkins himself, who said that it was a fault line beneath it. That's what he went to. And when Guy Underwood, for example, was doing surveys of the Stonehenge Avenue, which is right outside of uh, the Heelstone. I'm sure you visited Stonehenge on your mm -hmm. megalithic odyssey of the British Isles. <laughs> Did you, Mark? Yeah, uh, uh, yes, I, I was at uh, Stonehenge a couple times. Well, yeah, we're at the Stonehenge Avenue, for example. Uh, the one thing that Guy Underwood was very good at uh, divining were fault lines fissures in the ground. He did a fantastic survey of the sanctuary with the fault lines, and he did all of the fault lines coming down uh, the avenue. And when Mike Parker Pearson, uh, with, I think he was then with Sheffield University, he's with UCL now, they were excavating that and they found some, some fault lines down there. So that shows that there are geological conditions that uh, influence and make earth energy patterns that are dousable. Well, it, it, and a, another in, interesting feature of Wayland Smithy curbstones, it, it, it seems like those are pretty uh, commonly found at a a number of these megalithic sites, you have um, like Newgrange and the uh, Midhow uh, Chamber Tomb in the Orkney Islands. You, what role uh, do these curbstones play as you know, they are kind of like what, holding the sides uh, of the uh, earthen mounds? 
in place? Well, originally, when you had uh, long bowers, and that it was very common to curb them, the West Kennet long bow was recorded by an antiquarian called John Aubrey to have curbstones around it, and so was oh, Adam's grave, which is further south that had curbstones. Yeah, as well they're like edging stones because you would have had a slight causeway then a very deep ditch they're called flanking ditches either side of a long barrow now the the long barrow for example like the west kennet long barrow they're there because there was a much earlier structure at west kennet long barrow and it's probably going to be the same as newgrange and maze Howe in orkney because when the recent excavations were done at the West Canet Longbow, it was found that it was preceded by what's called a Neolithic longhouse. And a Neolithic longhouse is a timber structure that can be very trapezoid in shape, and that was where it's believed people lived in. That's because they find what's called... Uh, Neolithic Peterborough Ware pottery. But in my interpretation of places that have preceded the monumental landscape, I think because it was always seen as sacred, because there is something there, you've only got to go there, you feel different. People feel these uh, energies in the ground and all around them and in themselves as well. So I think they weren't necessarily Neolithic long houses, they were Neolithic long temples. And they were the first. Uh, building in the landscape, and then it became monumentalized, uh, monumentalized uh, afterwards. And then when we look to the genesis of, of the Long Barrow, you have to go to Europe, and then you have what's called the linear um, band ceramic culture, which built these massive long, long so-called longhouses, which were there, and then they would use them for burial afterwards. And then we have to question places like West Kennet Longbow because the archaeologists will always, always tell you it's about death, death, death. And that's not, no matter where you go. You could be in the king's chamber in Egypt, for example, and that's about death. But if we look at these places as having different phases, like I mentioned earlier, you had Wayland um, Smithy Phase 1, Wayland uh, Smithy Phase 2. And if you look to West Kennet Longbow or any Longbow, the first phase, I truly believe, was for ceremonial purposes. And even archaeologists now are trying to kind of fit and weave themselves back into the story by calling them tomb shrines. So when we look at these places, we need to think that they were sacred places and then finally they were used to place burial deposits in and then they were sealed up for all time they were compacted with earth after the burial deposits were placed in and in the style of you know some uh, herculean past massive blocking stones were put in in the front and that's what you see at west kennet longbow although richard atkinson and stuart piggott cemented the blocking stone in to to make a false facade uh, outside of the front so for me a long barrel has many many uh, different phases and it was used for different things in in different times well okay so in a little bit um <laughs> not a everything during the Neolithic time period was 
gloom and doom. You know, like you were saying, you know, uh, death. There was oh. So that's what the archaeologists would interpret it for, it, not the people it, themselves. It, yeah, the 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 people uh, uh, saw things more as a uh, celebration of life. Uh, you know, we, uh, I don't want to jump too far uh, ahead of ourselves, but uh, you know. We researchers today uh, might not be fully understanding the Neolithic people's uh, outlook on life. Well, no, because they left so little behind apart from their monuments. That's the thing. And their skulls and their bones. So we see the skulls and the bones and the monuments, not the lifestyle, not the culture. And we see shards of pottery. And from all of that, we try to think about who they were, what they what they did uh, in life. Well, for me, they were the long skulled people with the Neolithic. That's that is a fact. If you look to all of the, the skulls from Stonehenge, from Avebury, from Orkney, to Ireland uh, and to France, they are all, all long skulled. And that's who built those monuments. What they did in them, how they lived, is conjecture because they never wrote anything down. And that, that's why people could put an alien did it, they did it. You could put anything that you want uh, onto that. But what we do know is they had engineering skills. They had advanced geomancy knowledge to do with the earth energies and probably utilized it. Where we don't, we just douse it and kind of interact with it. And they were master astronomers as well. And they were mathematicians. So we know all of that about the, the ancient people to their credit. And maybe one of the best places to understand this high level of advanced culture, understanding of mathematics, um, would probably be in the Orkney Islands and looking at my Orkney Monuments book and well, if you go there yeah, yeah this uh, St. Magnus Cathedral um started about 1137 made out of red and white sandstone um were some of <clears throat> the medieval structures like the St. Magnus Cathedral built on the ley lines that were uh, running through the Orkney Islands. It, it, it just seems like there was something that was known 
going back to like uh, the Nessa Brodger that you know we're gonna get into here in a minute, and uh, Ring of Brodger, uh, Standing Stones of Stennis. Uh, but but did the medieval people uh, have a sense of what the ancestors knew about the ley lines and earth energies? Yes, because what what I, I sense is that the Neolithic handed the when you look at who laid out the lay system, let's really go back to basics, okay? Who laid out the, the lay system? Well, if you look to the oldest monuments on a lay, it's the Neolithic. And then the Bronze Age added to it with a stone circle. And then the Iron Age added uh, to it with a, a hill fort or a ceremonial centre or, or a shrine. And then the Romano-British added to that. And then so on and so forth until it gets to, to the Templars and some would say secret societies and uh, masons, etc., etc. So it was a, a geometric tradition that was handed down you never get a power center just a lay for example it has to be much much more than that to make it a power center it has to have a huge uh, spiral geo spiral there in terms of earth energy and lots and lots of different types of earth energy building up building up building up building up to make a power center so to the to the Bronze Age people, for example, they were looking for a huge circular Earth energy pattern, which I talk about in my book, Divine in Ancient Sites. It's a huge circular energy uh, pattern, and that's what they would place the standing stones above. And in the center of that, the deep, deep underground water or water under pressure creates a spiral pattern that is easily, easily uh, doused. And also, if it's a huge amount volume of water beneath the ground it makes that circular pattern and that's where the standing stones went on so that's what the 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 bronze age people were looking for to find the location for their stone circles for instance but different cultures do different things they want to change and they want to build and birth something new so to the the templars for example they weren't necessarily looking for the circular patterns of the Bronze Age period, they were looking for where two earth currents or two lays cross, and what I call is the geocross in the landscape. They're literally making a cross in the landscape, and that would be where they would then place their church above. There's a really good woodcutting going back to, I think it's the 17th century, that's often spoken about by dowsers in Europe, which shows people dowsing for that and marking it out in the in the environment. And the, but when you go to Europe, that's what they were doing here. And if you look to uh, other people's work, like Hamish Miller's, he would say, you know, you've got what's called the Mary and the Michael current. They're crossing near the uh, far end of the, the sacred energy point, uh, the altar to, to Christians. Uh, forming a cross there but you you get much different types of crosses at chichester cathedral at winchester for example that are down to underground underground water so i think it's different cultures do different things and then when you go to i've doused with master dowsers of italy for example and they have an, again another different design canon going on there with what they want is a triad 
of energy lines because the trinity is important to them so i think it's where you are in the world and a lot of the italian master dancers think the vatican is a place where numerous lays go into which incidentally according to the uh, british druid order say that it's called vat hill because you have a second grade of druids the first grade is bard then you get an ovate or a vat and then you get the druid that's the three phases of becoming a druid and the vats are the healers and the prophets and the diviners so i'd be classes like a vat uh, in that druid uh, system and that was their hill for the vatican it was for the vates and it was where they would talk about their prophecies until the christians came along and um, took over in effect okay what's maybe look at you know just say the saint magnus cathedral uh starting about 1137 is there a time afterwards where maybe people had lost the ability to connect with the earth energies and like you know now you know there's the overhead power lines who knows what's uh, buried underground, you know, different wires buried underground, and uh, uh, different uh, frequencies sent out through the computer and telephones and all that, satellites, the electric eye, and all these other gadgets that surround us. It, but but we're just re in. The invention of electricity may, it may have hindered our ability, but uh, maybe people like you who uh, maybe have like some genetic resistance to that, and, you know, you're able to still detect it. Or, or are we just rediscovering what the ancients knew a long time ago? Well, yes, we are. We're rediscovering. We're trying to put a puzzle together. That's why you have lots of different, you know, authors with lots of different disciplines trying to piece it all together from the astronomy to the geomancy, uh, etc. I mean, there there has been a, a disconnect going on for quite some time where the Earth has been disregarded. I mean, though, the one thing that I, I really do feel is that, you know, these Earth energies are alive. They're a part of Gaia. They're a part of this massive planetary uh, being that that we we live upon that has arteries and veins and huge amounts of underground water all giving off energy and different patterns mm -hmm. that the ancients maybe could sense or maybe they uh, even doused for because there was wells in the in the late bronze age so you'd have to know how to water divine to get a well if you're not using another water source so I think yes that they, they they were. And when I did some experiments with Rodney Hale, who originally worked with uh, Paul Devereux on the Dragon Project back in 2006, where does time go, Mark? 
Uh, I don't know. It, it, things are speeding up. I know. I know. It's it's awful. Um, yeah, back in 2006, we got the frequency, the Hertz frequency of the Mary current, we believe, by putting in probes, in, copper probes into, into the ground. But I remember Rodney telling me that it took him ages to take out every single man-made signal that was influencing the, his reading. It was like black, and eventually he had to take out all the man-made frequencies, which I remember he was saying can be up to 33 hertz, 50 hertz, or each time someone, you know clicks their car open, uh, that sends out uh, a frequency as well, like you were saying. And all of that he had to take out, and it was a lot of background noise. And that was in 2006. So now I think it is getting uh, kind of deeper and deeper and more intense. And then you've got master dowsers in Egypt saying that the once benign Hartman grid, which is uh, dowsable, the, they're suggesting, mind you, Cairo is a very built up place. You've got 23 million people living in that city. That's the entire people living in Australia on the continent in the same place, all with now, uh, you know, electromagnetic, uh, creating electromagnetic smog. And that some of the Hartman grid lines are carrying uh, that type of e-smog uh, with them because according to a lot of the Egyptian dowsers you have the great pyramids linked into the Hartman grid system because it's on a square base, the pyramids on a square base that's perfectly aligned north-south, east-west to the cardinal points and that's the direction of the Hartman grid for, for example although there's many things you can do to counteract that Okay, so Okay, so you just introduced um, Egyptian uh, information. How, how about we uh, jump back in time you know, a little earlier, and then you know, we'll uh, come back to the Egyptian information but you know, since, since we're mm-hmm. um you know do, doing this little section on the the orkneys um the orkneys are great yeah you know, retire there or it, it really is a fascinating place just to uh, visit the diversity of all the islands but uh, you know, what's some of the latest on the Ness of Brodger? I think the last time you were on, you know, was, you know, you know, mentioning that when I was there, um, you know, I walked from the Ring of Brodger to Standing Stones of Stenness. You know, I walked right over the Nessa Broad you know, hadn't been discovered yet. And this place seems like it, it was the Vatican of the Neolithic world. And, you know, I'm just, no one had any idea. It, it was halfway between both uh, monumental stone circles um so what has you know been coming out of the nessa broadger dig in the last uh 
several months since you were a guest with us. Okay, well, just to put it into context, uh, the you've got the Ring of Brodgar, which is huge. It's the third largest stone circle in the British Isles. Uh, it's wonderful. Today, you have about 27 or so standing stones left, still very uh, large and, and, and mm-hmm. imposing. And you, you, they originally had up to 60, it's believed. So it would have been quite a tight-knitted, perfect, almost a perfect circle standing there, really dominating the landscape because it was so, so huge. It has a diameter of around 340, 341 feet across. That's how large it is. Whereas the stones of Stenes, they're about 104, 105 feet across. So it's much, much smaller. And it's an ellipse. It's more ovid in shape. So you've got different shapes going on in Orkney as well. Then you have in the distance, just beyond the stones of Stenas, the huge maze howl. And and as you know, Mark, it's spectacular when you go Mm -hmm. into it. And it is aligned. It has a long passageway and every... Uh, setting sun at midwinter, a bit like Stonehenge is aligned to the setting midwinter sun. Its last rays would cast all the way through and illuminate the far end of the chamber. So that's they're the main temples in that area, and you can see them from one another, can't you? You they're all intervisible in, uh-huh. in that landscape. And the one thing that's really fascinated me about the Ring of Bodga as well. It doesn't have a henge, it doesn't have a bank, but it it did have a ditch. And that ditch went all the way down to the solid sandstone. And I think that would have buckled up a few antlers, if indeed they were using antlers to to pack into uh, the sandstone, if indeed that was the case. And in between that, you had the nest of vodka, which were indoor temple spaces built out of stone they had a stone was plentiful in orkney that's why even the houses of scara bray and i'm sure you've had laird on uh mm-hmm. talking about scara bray i'm a great um supporter of of laird fantastic author uh and fantastic research uh in, in his, his own right and he's done a lot on the links between different uh parts of the world with with orkney but when we have a, have a look at the, the stone circles there and we have a look at the in their outside temples, stone circles take you outside. They take you outside into nature to have a look at sight lines. There's water, locks close to uh, the Ring of Brodka. And then in between on the Nesta Brodka were uh, constructs all of indoor temples. Some of them had halves, like these stones of Stenes had a half. And it, it's believed uh, there's been quite a few little paint pots that have, were found in one dig at least, which uh, which suggests that they had pigment in them, like ochre. You, and your ochre comes in various different shades. You have the beautiful red ochre, for example. Then you have a very vibrant gold. And then you have a brown uh, color as well. And we were importing and exchanging from places like France, going way back uh, to the to the Bronze Age and, and even probably before to the to the Neolithic. I think we're probably being traded in uh, different types of minerals as well. 
because you have a black mineral that comes from France that it was really good. It was used in cave paintings, for for instance, um, and I think wow. that was being imported. So I think you have a very colourful world when you look to the Orkneys, and you have woad as well that was used by ancient cultures, which is a blue shade. So when we look to, we see things today as being kind of dull and, and colourless and almost lifeless, but I think inside of those temple spaces, they were very, very vibrant with, with colour and with maybe uh, drawings of symbols because in a dig recently down in Dorset, for example, they found that there was uh, carvings of spirals, of chevron patterns, of concentric circles that were cut into chalk, for, for example. And they incidentally are all the different shapes that represent underground yin and yang water. And one's universal. The chevron pattern represents water wherever you are in the world. You could be an Egyptian temple of Edfu and you see the chevron pattern going round representing water. And, and I've done my own experiments uh, with uh, ochre that where if you make it into a paste with a, a little bit of water and some ammonia, then that acts as a fixant. And then you, when you put that, especially when you paint it on timber or on stone without so much, so much weathering, like on the inside of those temples in Orkney, then they could be very vibrantly colored and creating a really different sense of wonder when, when you entered them because you'd be looking from them to be gray from the outside and then coming in and seeing them in various uh, vibrant shades. Okay, so with what you're describing at uh, the Ness of Broadgur, okay, looks like there were the chevron patterns, uh, some painting uh, inside the uh, ceremonial uh, uh, buildings. Uh, okay, you, you've established a uh, artwork. Uh, pattern uh inside um were you know, places built uh later being influenced by this uh that was uh, coming out of the Orkney Islands? I think there was artwork all over the British Isles because when you look to some finds in the Stonehenge in Brions, just to put it into context, I don't think that was unique uh, to Orkney, for example. There was a, a very big find at a place called Upton Lovell, not that far from Stonehenge. It was a Bronze Age round barrow. And they even called the person that they unearthed there the Stonehenge Shaman because he had lots of different artifacts with him and he had this big cloak on with 
uh, bones dangling at the bottom. So when he moved around, it would be quite dramatic. You could hear him dangling with uh, and creating quite a bit of noise if he was dancing and, and moving around. You know he was coming and put like that. Oh, it's, it's a shaman on his way. And he he was also found to to have lots of little pots, but this time he was found with like a needle coming uh, with it associated with one of these signs so they're now thinking the the archaeologists at least that there there were he was a, a big tattoo artist at Stonehenge so we can see that the people are going to be colored as well maybe with different uh, minerals and used as well to uh, cover their bodies with with artwork and oh. different kind of minerals. So I, I think we need to think about these people as being very, using their bodies, using their temples to express express who they are. Because most people that have a tattoo will give you the story behind it, unless they've just randomly gone and they haven't planned it. But most people I know that have uh, tattoos, they will give you the story behind it. And maybe that was the case going back to, to, to the Bronze Age. So we could we could visualize them having you know like uh, spiral tattoos because that was quite a popular motif that might have meant something as well. If you look to other grave goods coming from Derbyshire, uh, Staffordshire, and and the Stonehenge environs, they're very very similar symbols to the runes. And yet we say it has a, like a um, you know a Nordic Germanic heritage, if you will, the runes. But uh, I think you're fine that they they um, had those in jewellery artefacts at least or a divination system. Some of the the symbols that were were found they they weren't associated with a hole that you'd put uh, in a pendant. So I I think that symbols meant a lot to these people. Okay, and. Um... In Caesar's Conquest of Gaul, doesn't he describe uh, the Picts as being the painted people? Yes. So it's been it's yeah note it was noted uh, fifteen hundred years after uh, the. The Neolithic period you was know, kind, of, you know, kind of coming to an end, but the traditions carried on, and Caesar encountered the uh, painted people, uh, what, like in uh, 50 BC or whenever he, he was there. Yeah, from about 43 AD, the uh, Roman conquest. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, again, when we look back to the the true heritage of, of using color like uh, ochre, which was always considered sacred because everything to our ancestors had meaning. They had respect for the earth. They had love of the earth. And if you go back to some of the really old uh, ochre mines, they go back 40,000 years ago. And even uh, in some of their deposits in, in caves and in caverns and places like that they would paint the bones red as if trying to bring them back to, to life so I think it's a, such a long heritage and when it comes to the pics and to Caesar who you know when you're a con when you're winning and you're you're take over a country which is what he did you know he took over uh, the some parts of England he never made it up to uh, the Picts uh, so much but they were using woad in quite um, 
ingenious ways, according to an archaeologist called Francis Pryor, they would paint woad in like a spiral pattern on their face, and in twilight it would render them half invisible as well. And the Druids were renowned for going into war naked and, and painted uh, as well. I think that's brave, just uh, going into war naked, let alone facing the Romans. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Yeah, well, since this is an afternoon show, we'll have to keep uh, keep it clean for the young, younger uh, listeners. <laughs> but but um, you are also working on some research about um, some of the stones at Stonehenge may have been uh, painted as well. Well, yeah, because when you look around the uh, Stonehenge uh, landscape, ochre is plentiful. You only have to walk around Avery and you find it all of the time. You especially find the golden variety that um, that is around, uh, as, as well as the, the red ochre. So that's uh, plentiful. And when you come to the timber versions that are associated with the Stonehenge environs, you've got the uh, circles at Durrington Walls, you've got Woodhenge, their their timber uh, monuments and that goes especially well when you paint them with with ochre and one of my experiments painting uh, timber with uh, ochre I put it out in 2009 for two months and this is without ammonia without a fixer uh, put put into the paste and even after it was Storm Eric I think in 2019 the the paint stayed on really really well so I think you'd only have to touch up timber monuments you know every sort of like six or seven months or maybe it was for an event like the moon's batonic cycle or the mm-hmm. solstice or, or beltane and when it comes to the standing stones themselves you have very colorful stones at stonehenge you have the the blue stones you have the altar stone which was olive green and flexed in garnet very very stunning very very uh, beautiful and also little flexes of mica in that stone you see it as being weathered uh, today with the highly polished uh, blue stones, for example, going around the uh, the outside. But the sarsins themselves that were, were smoothed off to make them in a lozenger shape, they could have been painted with, with ochre for certain important ceremonies. And the people themselves, that's what I'm saying, I think it was the people themselves could have been painted and they were using the uh, canvas of the sarsin grey stones at Stonehenge to put, to put their symbols of meaning upon them so we see stonehenge you know four and a half using orthodox dating at least four and a half thousand years of weathering that 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 has gone by that so any trace would would have uh, have been gone and nowadays you have a lot of uh, lichen and also what you've got at stonehenge which was later than the heyday of 2500 bc you do have axe uh, axe carvings and you have dagger carvings there and on the inside of one stone you have a headless person as well and on one of the the great uh, trilithons you have what's called a rectangular marking in the in the stone that according to Aubrey Burl, I know that you're uh, uh, an avid reader of Aubrey, mm-hmm. Aubrey Burl, it says represents the goddess because that was what they 
put into long barrows and cans and court tombs in France. But I think it could have been something else. It may not have represented a goddess symbol, or it could have. And they could have been etched round as well, emphasized with ochre for particular ceremonial purposes at particular times of the year but especially the timber temples. And if you look at the reconstructions of uh, causewayed enclosures, which are called uh, rondelles in Europe, for example, you will find that they are put in in ochre and they're painting them up a, a little bit. And, and like I said earlier, they were trading a lot of minerals around uh, the, the world, uh, the known world of the, the Neolithic from France, uh, amber from pigment rather from France and uh, amber from Estonia and places like that. So there was a lot of trade going on. And we are the, the, the main mistake I think people make about ancient sites is we see it through our own eyes of what we see today. And so, so much is missing. It, it, I think your description with the blue, green, gray colors at Stonehenge and then you know, some of the sparkly uh, flashes that uh, the congregation would ha have uh, when the uh, light strikes you know, the flakes of mica at you know the right angle i i'm sure it's it was a very colorful experience and with all of the other uh or you know, with all the research going on in mm -hmm. uh, Stone the Stonehenge area, um, you know, lidar and ground penetrating radar is uh, showing us there. Yeah, you know, there was another monument. You know, just that you know a mile to the southwest of Stonehenge. Uh, you know, we're realizing that there is a lot more than just the uh, one Stonehenge monument and, you know, Woodhenge up the street. Um, but, you know, before the show started, you were also discussing uh that researchers also think that there was a uh, very large um, stone that uh, was at Stonehenge that, that um, no one knew about until uh, j just recently. What's the story going on with that? Well, it's, it's an ongoing story with uh, places like Stonehenge. You know, the, the the history changes, you know, from time to time. Mm -hmm. Even where the stones come from ha has changed. And there are large stone settings uh, beneath the ground as well that have yet to be raised. I mean, Colonel Hawley, for, for example, he recorded quite a few compacted areas within Stonehenge that are probably very, very large stones and, and large stone settings. 
and they chose to uh, get the stones, which has been discovered recently as well, from Westwoods rather than from the Valley of the Stones, which was always uh, thought about. But when we have a look at the surrounding uh, features around a place like Stonehenge, for example, it's, it's of many, many, many different eras. And even around Avebury and places like that, to the south of Avebury, you've got other stone circles, for, for example, and, and stone rows that are on private land. And uh, when you came to the Neolithic uh, and the early Bronze Age of making stone circles, and Stonehenge is the exception uh, here, because if we, if, we, but if we go to phase one of uh, Stonehenge, that was about 248 feet uh, in, in diameter, for example, the blue stone circle of 56 stones, Stonehenge phase one, they are huge. And in Avebury, when you look to the diameter of the great stone circle there, that's 1,088 feet uh, across in diameter. So Stonehenge, you could fit 10 Stonehenges uh, in, into Avebury. And they were for lots of people. That was a huge, huge collective experience. Everyone from far and wide would be going to these massive superhenges. Uh, and, you know, you could fit thousands of people in them, which is what Bill calculated at Avebury alone. You know, you could fit thousands uh, in there. But when it comes to the later Bronze Age, for example, and the, the second and third phase of Stonehenge, which is, you know, the Stonehenge is famous today with its little stone circle, they became much, much smaller. So it was going away from the we experience, I'm going to experience this with you, to this is my stone circle, and they became a lot, lot smaller. And that has been noticed by archaeologists, in, certainly in, in the Wessex region alone. And at that same time, where the emphasis was becoming egotistical, this is mine, this is for my family uh, unit, for, for example, because there's some very, very small ones uh, just about all oh, seven miles from Avebury tucked into little coombs uh, in, uh, in the Pusey Vale, uh, uh, for instance. Uh, the land was being divided up then as well, and it was a case of saying this isn't ours, like in the Neolithic, it was a collective experience, this is ours, and, and all the land was being divided up, and you started to have farmsteads that were in big palisade enclosures with big ditches saying this is, this is my land. So I think the change in ceremonial landscape is layer after layer after layer with era after era. And the sad thing is, I really think if we went back to, to the Neolithic period where it was collective, even the experience of burial deposits were collective in the Neolithic, for example, because lots of people went into the chambered tombs of West Kennet Longbarrow, Wayland Smithy, Phase 1 and Phase 2. It's collective. When it came to the Bronze Age with the uh, Beaker people that immigrated, immigrated into the, I mean, uh, immigrated into the, uh, into to the landscape uh, rather, it, it became again an egotistical culture where it was one burial was for the one round, bound, round barrow had one burial in, but you get secondary ones later, but put into the side of the mound. But it was predominantly for one person, and then towards the late later uh, time period of of, of the Wessex burials you would have gold goods placed in them as well, representing a wealth. Wealth was coming to, to mean a lot, and they traded a lot in amber and in gold and in bronze. That was their money. 
and later on it, the money became cattle and it became corn for example so they had lots of different currencies in different eras but I do think we could learn a lot about uh, living together from the Neolithic okay. with what you were just mentioning about uh, uh, trade of minerals and cattle um, you know, which brings the uh, appearance of a hierarchical society um, the there with the trade that was going on, we see uh, something similar happening a little later in Egypt with uh, the temples. Some of the temples being uh, painted, and when when we had um, Normandy Ellis as a guest. Few, two three months ago, uh, talking about um, her trips to Egypt, um, it, it, it seemed like there was a lot more uh, long distance trade going on. And you mentioned the Temple of Edfru. Edfru. Ed, Ed, uh, that had uh, the chevron pattern and uh, the the lapis uh, blue colors inside of um, the Egyptian temples, and you know, we know, uh, you know uh, Dr. Child writes about the faience beads, uh, Egyptian faience beads being found in. Um, the Stonehenge area, it, it, it seems like th there is some commonalities that really do suggest that um, there was long-distance trade going on between Britain and Egypt. Yep, the, the Wessex elite... The, the ones that, you know, have the very rich burial goods alongside them, the golds and the beads and the, the amber from from Egypt and Estonia and, and jet from, you know, the north, north of England. That was a, a big trade uh, as well. And very polished uh, axes, beautiful, highly polished like uh, jade axes. I mean, they, they were absolutely gorgeous. That was their currency. So that's what they would be would be trading in all of all of the time. And and later, like I said, it would be, the currency would change. I mean, the the Celts, uh, the Iron Age people, were very famous for their cloths and their hunting dogs, and that's what Caesar would want from from that culture. That's what I mean. In that era, that's when things changed, and that's when uh, the lifestyle that we are used to having a hierarchy, having higher kings and rulers, and, and that sort of thing came into being it was seeded in that that part of of the bronze age the, the hierarchy 
And even at Darlington Walls, Mike Park Pearson uh, points out that you had large houses and you had smaller houses, just like you have in society today. While some archaeologists would argue that the larger houses could be halls and they could be a communal area, he argues that they represented the wealth the hierarchy within that town, within that village. And that was probably mm. echoing around. But when you go to Brodka, for example, it tends to be a standard size, a bit like you get at the units at Charco Canyon. They tend to be five rooms and a kiva outside the front. That's a standard unit. And that was more towards the north, I feel, than, than towards the south. Because we were had a trade in port, you could go in a straight line on a ley line that I often talk about, the Duke line. You could, that goes all the way from Avebury. It goes through site after site, heads for Christ uh, Church on on the on the coast uh, near there, and that was being discovered recently to be a, a trade in uh, Neolithic and Bronze Age port. So that's probably where the goods were coming in from. And they were made it ceremonial because they put it on, on a lay that was coursing through the land as well. And again, it's because everything in the ancient world had meaning and it would have an expression that, that they, they understood. Okay, so we see a lot of these... Um changes what may be uh, cultural changes happening about 2000 BC uh, might be uh, correct me if I'm wrong but uh, closer to 4000 BC at uh, places like Carrochiel in Ireland um, <clears throat> These some of these first uh, stone monuments in the British Isles were being first constructed, and maybe around five hundred years later, you get. Uh, in the culmination of this um, Irish uh, mortuary renaissance culminating in Newgrange. So could you tell us a little bit uh, about the evolution of some of these uh, Irish monuments from the western side of Ireland to the eastern side and uh, how it maybe some some of the uh, similarities that how we may find in England and then you, know, you, know, you just uh, tr traced the, the trade from England to Egypt but you know uh, what, what was going on in Ireland uh, a, a little earlier before Stonehenge well, on the west coast of Ireland, you have a place called Sligo, and Sligo is a big bay. And it's often been pointed out by many uh, researchers 
and authors alike that if indeed there was a continent, the long lost continent of Atlantis, for example, and you had survivors, you know, presumably on some kind of makeshift boat has been mooted and they are going with the natural currents of the ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, then it will take you to Sligo Bay. And it's interesting to note that the oldest monuments in the British Isles are found at Sligo. And they are Carrowkeel, which you mentioned, and Carrowmoor. And Carrowkeel is spectacular. It's on a mountain, and it's dramatic. And on top of that mountain, which is like a large hill, they call them mountains in Ireland, but if you imagine a very large, rugged hill, strewning quartz. Everywhere you go, you see quartz. And they, they got the quartz out of the ground and made these quartz cans and they placed all of the, the quartz on top. So they gleaned for miles. You can see these cans from miles and miles away. And on the inside, they are white quartz boxes, smooth to the touch. And one at Cara uh, Carrakeel has a light box above it long, long before Newgrange. It has a light uh, box above it. And every year when the setting sun sets at the summer solstice, then that, that red ray shines all the way through and hits the white quartz box. And beneath the ground, you have a lot of earth energies, which are associated with deep water they're called branch spirals and they're all set on these spiral patterns but it was a friend of ours mark called james swagger who mm -hmm. discovered that all of the cans of Karakil aligned perfectly to the setting of the constellation of cassiopeia at midwinter he was a very talented uh, astronomer was dearest james was the name and yes. he, he he knew ireland like no, nobody else i learned a lot from james when i i spent all of that time with him uh, in ireland so again we're, we're looking at a very sophisticated ancient culture that pre predates stonehenge and and elsewhere and that's really uh contained within within sligo and then if you go just a, a few miles away you come to caramore and Caramore is it's spectacular. It has cairns, it has dolmens, it has standing stones. It, it really is a very, very vast area. And that's why today it's often thought that Newgrange is a bad reconstruction. Because if you look at every other cairn in, in Ireland, and again, this is what James always uh, pointed out, is that the quartz is always on the top of the cairn not on the frontispiece like they put at Newgrange. They literally stuck it on there and every now and again put a chunk of darker um, stone by it to give like a, a, a contrast, which they thought that's what the ancients did. In all probability, it's the other way around. It's like Karakil, all the quartz is going to be on top and over uh, the mound uh, as well. So when we come to the ancient sites of Ireland, we, we have to think that especially on the west coast, that is the oldest point 
of the megalithic construction of the British Isles. Although, when you look to reports coming out from Orkney, they lay claim to that's one of the oldest points as well. But most people would agree, and Aubrey Burl certainly writes about it, that it is Ireland's west coast that takes uh, the oldest crown, so to speak. And that, again, it's a legendary landscape where Yeats wrote about the favour, and it is very, very magical. And just opposite Karakil, on the next mountain, you have a, a, a most spectacular placed round barrow that, again, would have been capped off in white quartz. In Wessex, where I live, they were uh, chalked off, so they would have still appear white, and like the pyramids would have been cased off with white limestone, that was a, a general design canon in, in the Neo Neolithic, you have on the next mountain, opposite Karakil, a beautiful, stunning, massive khan. And inside, the legend said that there lies Queen Maeve, this warrior queen figure that uh, ruled Ireland at one point. But in Ireland and in other places, it's not what you see above ground that can be quite spectacular, Mark. It's what you see below the ground. And there's one spectacular monument in a place called uh, Roscommon. And the monument is called Owen the Gat, the Cave of Cats. Oh. And to enter it, you have to enter a subterranean world. If you imagine you're at a long barrow, you've got a plinth above your head and you've got a small gap and you put your body right the way down, you have to like squeeze yourself into the monument and if you turn around Owen Agat, you see Owen carved writing and that's said to be, you know, related to Queen Maeve. And then you go down a long, long way to the bottom area and it's it's quite slidey it's it's very it's not for the faint-hearted i remember i remember going there actually with um james dearest james and thomas sheridan and we had to talk thomas down because it really does change you you're in the dark you're trusting in something inside you that you'll get to the bottom although james you know it's a modern day he put his torch on on his mobile phone so we were kind of cheating but uh, we, we, got to, we got right to the bottom and then it opens up to this massive cathedral style um, chamber that all of the top pieces of masonry are definitely dressed. Although it's called a cave, you can see that that has workmanship. Now, in its pristine condition, you went in one way and you came out the other like going through the underworld going into the womb of Gaia and you're really in that earth energy field as well in a place like Oina Gat and you can feel it ripple through you and the acoustics in there are absolutely incredible as well but originally you would have come out another way into the light into being a reborn but today that got caved in and it hasn't been excavated and you go out from whence you came but you still come out differently you've interacted with this site and something changes within you and I remember Thomas saying to me that site really changed me it made me feel a deep respect for being inside uh, the womb of the earth and you're in when we switch the the mobile phone torch off you're in pitch black 
and it's silent and you can almost hear your own heartbeat. And you get these monuments in Cornwall, Fogus, and you get these monuments as well on Orkney and one of which is called uh, Mine Howe. Did you go to Mine Howe, Mark, when you were in Orkney? Um, no, I... Um... I think at that point I didn't know that it, it existed. So I, I, I missed that one. I'm gonna, I think, uh, you know, with the uh, increase in salary from Blog Talk Radio this year, I hopefully I, I can make it over to visit mine how. Wow. Well, uh, well, tell me when you're over, Mark. You'll be the first to know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll buy you dinner uh, near near mine house. Well, if you if you had gone there, it's like a spiral staircase of twenty seven steps going down. It's literally like a spiral staircase cut in into the earth. And right at the last minute, you're on this uh, ledge. Then you have to kind of jump down you know, about four feet or, or so, and then land at the, the last landing point. And again, that's about taking a leap of faith, being inside the earth herself. So the, these are conscious changing uh, places. They're places that put us back in touch with who we are. And at the same time, reconnect us to Gaia, reconnect us to the energetic values of the place, the, the earth energies and, and the lays and, and the negative ions coming out of the deep water and sometimes the vortex uh, energy uh, associated with these places uh, can be quite common as well. And all of that is a cocktail to change our consciousness. And most people that I have taken to these places do have uh, quite often life-changing uh, experiences where suddenly they something clicks inside of them. And it's because of the the legacy our ancient ancestors left us in the monuments and the living earth energies that are still there today, but us interacting with them. Because if you take away the, the humankind from the monument, they are just the monuments. I think what the, the ancients designed them for was complete interaction to, to work with the spirit of place there, to work with the guardian there, to, to be one with the site and to really merge with the landscape. So I think they're kind of living, living universities, living cathedrals. They're many, many things. They're multifaceted. Okay, and, and you know, we have maybe about 15 minutes left, but... Um, Since you were just uh, discussing the frogus and you know, throughout the show, you've mentioned the water under these uh, ceremonial sites and uh, the ley lines. It, 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 if the proposed tunnel were to be built near Stonehenge, would the uh, digging uh, impact the water or the ley lines? It seems like uh, many people are very much opposed to uh, 
um, the building of the, the tunnel, uh, what would be changed in the Stonehenge area if this were to be done? When the English, because I shan't drag the Scots or the Welsh into this, um, when the English went to Hong Kong, they decided they were going to build a village. And they were going to call that village Happy Valley. But the Chinese geomancers and the Feng Shui masters there said, no, you can't do that. You will amplitate the energy, the uh, dragon lines. You can't do that. It will bring misfortune to this land. And, of course, they said no, because the English thought they knew it all, and they built in Happy Valley. Within a few years, there was insect infestation there, and today... Uh, it's um, not uh, a pleasant place. You have a lot of um, substance abuse and, uh, you know, that type of energy is there. Because you have taken something sacred and you have amplitated it and you have soiled it. So when you then put that uh, analogy to the Stonehenge environs and you're, you're going to say you're going to put a, a tunnel in, you're going to build this, you're going to build that, you know, you're just um, endangering the, the site it's, itself. And I, I think it's more about control of English heritage of a whole landscape anyway, because if you take out the, those track lines, and not the track lines, the tracks rather, they just happen to be on what's called track lines in the geodetic system of Earth energy, living energy set those tracks, then, you know, you, you, you can't access Stonehenge unless you walk from Woodhenge down. That's the only way of, if you don't go through the Disneyland visitor center and getting on the bus etc then it, it, it's very difficult so and if they're saying oh it cuts the noise down well you've got the royal artillery bang 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 boom 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 on their war games nearby so it's not about the peace uh, peace and quiet uh, at all so for me i think the tunnel is more about i'm going to control the landscape and who knows what our rescue uh, archaeology is going to be done there who knows that you know whether that's going to do any damage to the sensitive um, veins of Earth energy and the, the the deep waters there and all of that to boot with with building uh, near there. And I think it's a sad fact that um, it's being pushed through without listening to the the uh, alternative community which have voiced their opinion actually with the, with the Stonehenge uh, alliance but sometimes i feel that the decision has been made beforehand anyway so it, it's still in limbo well apparently it, it's going to be given the the, the green light and it's going to be landscapes. I mean, they've already taken the, the first road, which linked from the A303 to Devizes. That road got taken out because the heelstone used to be by the edge of a road. And now that's grassed, uh, grassed over. And they'll be doing the, the same. They'll be pre presumably landscaping where the A303 is uh, today. And they're saying that that will speed up the traffic. 
and 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 things like that but at the end of the day i feel that we shouldn't be tampering with the landscape because of what happened in places live in history like a happy valley where nobody nobody was ever happy okay it um let's see. one of the topics that you know we didn't like you know we kind of hinted about uh some places you know like the diameter of Avebury um there's at times there was a standard unit of measurement, like the megalithic yard, found at many of these uh, archaeological sites. Um, Aubrey Burrell ha- has them listed in his the Stone Circles of the British Isles. Uh, Seems like you know there's a pattern like uh, uh, you know like you, you, know, you said you could fit ten stone hinges inside of Avebury you know like uh, maybe there's some other ones that you could fit five stone hinges um, it, it seems like there aside from using colors and the chevron patterns uh you know there, there there was a standard unit of measurements uh utilized at these places um is that still uh holding true today well, I think when you look at how many surveys that Alexander Tom completed, and it was uh, over 600, uh, wow. all of which he said was, you know, down to the megalithic yard uh, of two point, I think it's 2.72 feet. Um, yeah. Uh, it was 2.72 or 2.62. I think it's 2.72. And the survey after survey after survey showed that that was you know being implied and worked with 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 the ancient people and also he looked at different shapes to do with uh, a standard design canon of stone circles uh, some were sort of like ovid and an egg shape so he really did look very deeply into the the nature of the megalithic yard you have other orby bull for example argues that it wasn't a standard measurement of 2.72 feet that the megalithic yard of tom when you go to places like cumbria bull would argue that there was the cumbrian equivalent of the megalithic yard and and mike parker pearson in his book on stonehenge says there's a different unit used at stonehenge but they didn't survey 600 sites they're they're looking at a few sites and saying it could could have been been that so if i was a gambling person my money would definitely be on alexander tom because he was so so thorough 
in his observations and in his measurements and in his surveys, which cannot be beaten today and are still still used. And if there's any survey that I ever work with for for one of my books, like on on Woodhenge, uh, etc., it is Alexander Tom who I turn to time and time again. He is accurate. Well, interesting. Um, and speaking of uh, books, um, yeah, you have a number of uh, books uh, available. Um, you're hoping to get your, a book on the painting out soon. Um, how, how can people obtain copies of your fascinating publications? Well, they can go to either one of my websites. I've got two websites. I teach uh, Dowson and uh, other subjects at uh, esotericcollege.com. That has a shop. You can go straight to the shop there and find out about courses and about workshops on, on Dowson, like I say, many other subjects besides and, and readings that, that I do. Or you can go to the Avebury Experience .co.uk and there's a shop there and you can have a look at uh, the publications there and in my forthcoming book I'll be looking very deeply into the long-skulled people and their culture and also earth energies very very differently because I've been working with a mathematician and we're looking into uh, the, the, the mathematical side of earth energies as well into their their harmonics and things like that and how you can actually interact with those as well at ancient sites so we've been looking very in very through very different eyes than it's been done before because i think it's been kind of stuck in, in a little bit of a, a little pigeonhole and what i've done with working with a couple of people is we've taken it out of that uh, pigeonhole hopefully and we're expressing it in a different way, but more importantly, showing you how you can work with these energies at ancient sites today. And that that hopefully will be out within uh, within the next uh, three to six months. So that's quite exciting. As mm -hmm. well, I talk about very unusual, very unusual burials at uh, ancient sites, which really kind of equates to what uh, Lloyd Pi found like his star child. He found a skull and said it could it could have been it could have been an alien. It could have been a disabled person. Uh, uh, without you know going into details of uh, DNA, you know uh, who who can say. But I found some very unusual burials like that. So I think there's lots going on in the Stonehenge and Avebury environs that are yet to be you know understood fully. And also I look into earth energies and agriculture as well and have moved on John's Burke, John Burke's work to, uh, to about sort of a, mo a modern day. And we're looking at how the earth energies can affect uh, seed germination and growth and how the ancients laid out their, their field systems in different eras and seem to have got equally as good quota so for example if you look at the iron age 
it wasn't until the advent of the 1950s and chemicals that they could that modern people could beat the quota that the Iron Age were producing. And you, you have to say, yeah, I know you have to say how did they achieve that? And when you look to um, to especially to lidar these days, and you can see how everything was laid out rather than, you know, how fields are laid out today. I mean, they're, they're laid out in a different way because we had the Enclosure Act, you know, of a couple of hundred years ago where you had hedges up and, and things like that. If you go strip it back to its, its original design canon, then, then I think we could change the way that we grow food, the way that we interact with the earth, and the way that the earth can interact with us as well because it's like monuments it's like earth energies it's a two-way process it's not just you go into the site it's the site speaking to you the site interacting with you is is very very important since you know it's uh, pretty obvious that none of us can really get out and uh, go to libraries and um you might be able to you know walk around some of these places by yourself but um you know th- things have changed you know, change uh for us uh researchers in the last year but are you able to uh continue doing your research online or you know, a- access the Oxford Library, are you still able to stay fairly busy with um, your your research during all these lockdowns? I'm very fortunate in a way because I'd uh, got a lot of articles and archaeological reports, etc., a long, long before a lockdown anyway. It was, it was a catch-up time for me to go through them all. So that was very fortunate. And uh, I'm really f- fortunate as well because I inherited all of the surveys of the Master Dowser Guy Underwood, and I'm going through all of those surveys and discovering new things as well. So uh, I'm, I feel that, uh, quite uh, fortunate in that, that regard. But thanks for asking, Mark. Okay. Well, it, it, it's it, it has been a challenge. Hope uh, for the last year, and it's a challenge with the phone ringing all the time <laughs> as well. But um, yeah, I'll, I'll uh, uh, you know, we're down to you know, like two two minutes, and you know, I just wanted to thank you for being our guest today. Uh, it was very enlightening having you uh, return and uh, uh, we will have you back sometime soon to cover the new updates but you know I'm glad you're you you had a lot of materials at hand uh, before you know uh, the the lockdown started so you know you've had a chance to stay busy but um, uh, please come back and keep us updated about new discoveries you have uh, going on. And I I just want to thank you again uh, for being a guest. And uh, do you you want to plug anything uh, real quickly uh, again? 
Well, if we can get out into the ceremonial landscape, we've talked about Uffington and other places, go to the AveburyExperience.co.uk, click on Dowsing Workshops, and I'll be going to Uffington, interacting with the male and female vortex energy and the Genesis lay there, as well as your standard earth energies and lays there as well. And we'll be interacting with Wayland Smithy and those pulsating points, and I'll be going to the Stonehenge environs and also... Um, Stanton Drew, for example, so check out those. We always have a good time, and uh, it's uh, it's always a nice, pleasant experience. And I've got a few little tours of the booked in for people coming from abroad, Mark, but you just never know whether they're going to be able to achieve that, really. Okay. Oh, great. Well, uh, we are just about out of time. Thank you again. Thanks, Barbara, for producing it, and we'll talk to everyone next week. Yep, thank you, Mark, and thank you.